Would you turn your Bibles to the book of Mark chapter 14? And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a sampling of 14 and 15, and this is how I'll do it. It'll be on the screen, but turn your Bibles to 14. I'll start in chapter 14, verse 32, and then I'll jump to chapter 15, verse 16, and then I'll jump to chapter 15, verse 33. So I'll just jump around. I'll read it, and then we'll pray, and we'll see together how, what I want to reflect on this morning and consider, and again, it won't be as theological as, as, as we typically do, it'll be way more reflective in nature. I want to reflect together and consider how Jesus' death was a different kind of death, how his death was different than the death that you and I die, how it was different than a death that anyone else has ever died. That's what I want to reflect on this morning. Turn to chapter 14, verse 32, and I'll read And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And he was going a little farther, and he fell down on the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping, and he said to to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and he prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer to him. And he said the third time, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, the whole battalion, And they clothed Jesus in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And when they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him away out to be crucified. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and they put it on a reed and they gave it to him to drink saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Let's pray. Jesus, you died for us. Remove all the religious and the tired connections to what this means. Remove all the jaded cynicism that this entails, that some of us hold in our hearts, hold so deep into our souls. Remove all our doubt and answer all our questions today, God. Show us your love and your agony and your purpose in dying on the cross, Jesus. 
I pray for those who look at the cross as foolishness, who think it's a joke, who think it's fake, who think it's never, never happened, that you would make it today to them the wisdom of God. And for those who look at the cross as a stumbling block to faith, and they just can't believe that the cross is victory, I pray that you would make it the foundation upon which they stand and which they boast. I pray today against Satan and his works and what he tries to do to blind people and keep them in blindness. I pray against his works. I pray, Jesus, that you would open up our hearts. I submit my mouth and my mind and my heart to you, and I ask God that you would use this very weak vessel for your glory. Would you please bless your word today? In Jesus' name, amen. We've been talking a lot about the powerful and the subversive inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And today, we're going to go into Passion Week. This week is Passion Week. And I want to look at together, I want to look at the garden leading to the cross. How God is a God that's rescuing us. We've talked about this for a very long time. How God has come to rescue us from our sin. God is on a rescue mission to rescue us. And Jesus is the embodiment of all that the gospel is. Not only does he preach the gospel, but he is the gospel. He embodies the gospel, so he comes to bring the gospel. And we've called it the inbreaking kingdom of God, God breaking into human time and space. And with this inbreaking comes all these wonderful things that he does. But when you get to the end of the story of the book of Mark, something changes. And so I want to look at the, the garden today. And what happens in the garden that changes everything? This is how I want to look at it. The garden leading to the cross, I think we see three things. And this is what I want to really just reflect on with you this morning. We see that we see a different Jesus in the garden than we've seen before in the book of Mark. We see a different death. And we see a willing sacrifice. This is how we'll look at this pericope, this episode, the garden. A different Jesus, a different death, and a willing sacrifice. And what should strike us right away, as we read the, this garden narrative, as we read this garden episode, is that how different Jesus is in the garden. How different he is when he enters this garden. It's almost like he's a different person. It's a different Jesus than what we've seen previously. Look at Mark chapter 14. Let me read this to you again in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled, and he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here while I watch. This is an absolutely different Jesus. In the garden, something happens that seems to change Jesus. Before the garden, as we've talked about even on Sundays, before the garden, we have seen so far in Mark, Jesus remained collected. Jesus has remained cool and in control no matter what the situation has been. He's always been cool, calm, and collected through the, book, the narrative of Mark. They question him about not being able to forgive sins. Like, Jesus, who are you to forgive sins, to say somebody is forgiven of their sins? And he answers his critics by telling this paralytic who was lowered through a hole in the roof, laying on the ground, oh, you don't think I can forgive sins? Take up your bed and walk. And this paralytic stands up, grabs his mat, and pieces out. And everybody just stands there stunned. And then later on, they question him about eating with sinners. And without batting an eye, he looks at his critics and says, this doctor has come for the sick, not for the well. And it shuts him up. And they don't say a word. And he shows emotion, like compassion he had for the leper who walks up to Jesus 
And he, he not just has compassion, but he actually touches and heals him, showing that he's in total control. And then he has anger, as we talked about last week, when, he, when the religious leaders didn't want him to heal and restore this man on the Sabbath. But he tells the man with the shriveled hand, stretch it out. This man with the shriveled hand is, is there, and all these other people are like questioning, you can't be healing somebody on the Sabbath. Jesus gets angry and goes, stretch out your hand, and he stretches it out. Jesus is always in control, always. When he's walking with thousands of people and they get hungry, he feeds them from almost nothing. When his disciples are caught in the middle of a storm, he walks on water to greet them. They're caught in the storm, and they think they're going to go down, and Jesus comes out walking on water. And when they're caught in another storm, we find him asleep at the bottom of the boat. That's how much peace he walked in. And when he says something to anger the crowd, and they want to throw him off a cliff, he slips away like some rabbi ninja. And no one knows where he, came, where he went. And he just slips away. He's always in control. He always knows what to say. He always knows what to do. He always knows where to go. He always knows how to react. Always. And after the garden, after the garden, though taking the unbearable beating and being nailed to a tree, he does this with this confidence. Jesus calmly is taken into custody. When he tells Peter to put away his sword, he heals the man who Peter, Peter chopped off a dude's ear and Jesus heals him, picks up his ear and puts it back on. And he goes calmly. He stands before Pilate, and when he was asked, are you the son of God, Jesus confidently says, it is as you say. He asked the Father to forgive those who were beating him and nailing him to the cross. Jesus dies differently, so differently, in fact, that this centurion, who's the superintendent of Jesus' whole death, who has to watch him from being, being beaten and flogged all the way until he dies, at the very end, when he finally breathes his last, Jesus dies such a different death that he looks up at Jesus and says, truly, this is the Son of God. There is something different about this man's death. But in Gethsemane, we see something completely different. We see something different than before Gethsemane, and we see something different after Gethsemane. In Gethsemane, in the garden, we see something different happen to Jesus. Look at verse 32. And when they went away to a place called Gethsemane, he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. He began to be troubled. Jesus, the Son of God, began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Literally what happened to Jesus as he entered the garden was he was stunned from astonishment and overwhelmed with sorrow. Literally. He walked into the garden and he was stunned with astonishment. Something caught him off guard and he was overwhelmed with sorrow. When Jesus stepped into that garden, something happened to him that shocked him. An awareness came over him where one commentator said, the Lord was overwhelmed with sorrow, but his first feeling was one of terrified surprise. Something absolutely terrified Jesus in the garden. Jesus always knew that he would face the cross, always. He walked with the awareness of the cross the whole time. But when it came into clarity, when it came into perfect clarion vision. When it came into perfect view in the garden, its terrors exceeded his anticipations. 
What Jesus was about to face in the cross came into clear focus in the garden, and it stunned him. And these words depict the pain that results from this great shock. There's this metal condition from being under this kind of shock and distress where you literally bleed from your sweat glands. And Dr. Luke in his gospel says that that's exactly what happened to Jesus in the garden. He was so overwhelmed in the garden that he began to sweat blood. Look at how Jesus verbalizes this shock. He actually, we see the humanity of Jesus in the garden. He actually just says it. Have you ever been so overwhelmed that you just have to say it? Like, oh my my gosh. And you you just have to say something. There has to be some sort of release. Look Look at how Jesus verbalizes this, even showing his humanity. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. He was completely surrounded with grief on all sides in the garden. There was no comfort at all in that garden. There was no happy place that he can go. There was no hope that he clung to in the garden. And he adds, even to death. Jesus could have died right there on the spot. This is not hyperbole. He could have literally died right there on the spot. What this literally means is my affliction is so great, I am sinking under the weight of it. Jesus' affliction in the Garden of Gethsemane was so great that he was sinking under its weight. And in verse 35, he went a little farther, and he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. How do we explain this? See, normally, Jewish men prayed with their hands toward heaven out loud and standing, but Jesus fell on the ground. Jesus, the anointed one, who up to this point had been prophesying about his death, who has been telling everybody about his betrayal and the abandonment of the disciples here in the garden, going to his death, he staggers. He falls down. He wavers just for a moment, and then he asks not to go through with it. He asks God, God, is there any other way to redeem humanity? Is there any other way that I don't have to go to the cross? He's sinking under the weight of what's going to happen. Jesus wasn't wrestling with new knowledge or new information about his death. He knew he was going to die. He always knew about the cross. What was happening in the garden was his human soul was receiving a new experience. And this new experience was not a familiar one to Jesus. And what was this experience that Jesus was experiencing in the garden? The reality of our sin being placed on his shoulders. And what that experience really felt like. And we see this in in his prayer. Look at his prayer in verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Take this cup from me. The cup. What was this cup? Jesus knew all about this cup. He told his disciples previously that he would drink from this cup. This cup was the purpose and the passion of Christ. When he went to Jerusalem, he went there with his face set to drink this cup. That's why he was sent to this world. He knew all about the cup, and why did he ask for the cup to be taken from him? This cup that Jesus is talking about here is a metaphor in the Old Testament of the wrath of God to be poured out on human evil. Isaiah chapter 51 verse 17 says, wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, for you have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You have drunk it to the dregs. 
the bowl, the cup of staggering. This cup was the divine justice poured out on injustice. And in the garden, Jesus begins to experience this cup. He actually takes this cup in the garden, and he swirls it around, and he smells it, and he sips it, and it almost kills him. William Lane said, Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but he found hell rather than heaven open before him, and he staggered. He was hit in the garden with the reality of our sin. He was hit in the garden with the reality of the wrath of God. He was hit with the reality that he would die and be separated for us. Now think about this. Why did Jesus go to his death different than most of his followers would go to their death? I mean, from church history, history, we see that most martyrs face their death seemingly better than Jesus faced his death. I think I've I've read you the story of Polycarp. Before the Roman council was required to worship Caesar as Lord, and his refusal, he said to the council, the council said to him, I have wild beasts, and if you refuse to worship us, we will throw you to them. And Polycarp said, send for them. Send for the wild beasts. And they said, if you despise the wild beasts, we'll send you to the fire. Curse the Christ, and I swear I will release you, they said to Polycarp. And Polycarp said to them, you threaten the fire that burns for an hour, then is quenched. But you know not of the fire of judgment to come, and the fire of the eternal punishment. Bring what you will. Why do the followers of Jesus die seemingly better than Jesus? They go to their death valiantly, triumphantly go to their death. Why? Why did Jesus face his death like this, almost crushed under the weight of it before he ever gets to the cross? Because Jesus was facing a different kind of death. Jesus was facing a different death than you and I face. He must have been facing what the disciples weren't facing, a death different than Polycarp was facing, different death than disciples would ultimately face, beyond the physical. I mean, there was physical pain at the cross. The Roman cross was the most horrific and humiliating way to die. It was Rome's way of saying, we rule the world. And and if you don't think so, we'll humiliate you and crush you in plain sight for everyone to see. It was so horrible that Roman citizens weren't allowed to be crucified because it was that bad. A Roman philosopher at the time asked that Roman citizens not even speak of the cross because it was too disgraceful of a subject for the ears of decent people. They didn't talk about the cross. It was too vicious and disgusting. There was even a word invented to describe the cross because there was no word for the pain of the cross. So they made up a word, and the word's excruciating. The word literally means from the cross. But it was more than physical because church history says that, that Peter, the apostle Peter was crucified, and he, he went to his cross saying this, I don't want to be crucified like Jesus. Crucify me upside down. I'm not worthy to die like Jesus died. So it had to be something more than physical, that cross. Though it was painful, it had to be something more. See, on the cross, Jesus bore our sin and our guilt and our shame. We know what it, this feels like. We know what guilt feels like. We know what shame feels like, the anguish of doing something wrong, of sinning. We know the weight of guilt. Even if you don't necessarily believe in Jesus this morning, you have your own standards of morality that you've managed to make up. And when you violate your own morals, you know this to be true. When you violate your own morals, 
When you do wrong, even by your own standards, there's this bitter sense of separation from all that is right in the universe. You've set this thing up for yourself, and you failed yourself, and it's like something's wrong, and an awareness of something that, in a very deep sense, ought not to be. We know what guilt feels like. But Jesus was perfectly holy, and he hated sin within his entire being. He hated religious sin and immoral sin. It angered him to the point of doing something about it. He came down. He healed. He set right. He restored. He lived out, and he embodied the gospel. He spoke against religiosity. He spoke for the gospel and embodied the gospel. But he did all of this looking forward to the cross. When all that Jesus hated most deeply would be poured out on him fully. Because of that, the death of Jesus meant abandonment and bearing the wrath of God. This is what almost crushed him in the garden. Jesus' death wasn't just physical. The pain of crucifixion and the pain of taking on himself the absolute evil for sins would be faced alone. Jesus would die alone. He was rejected by Israel. He would be sacrificed as a political pawn by the Romans to shut up the Jews. He was denied and abandoned by his own followers. Jesus is so utterly and wholly forsaken and exposed to the horror of humanity's sin that in his dying breath, he senses his separation from the Father and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Why did God forsake him? This is the most difficult part of all. Jesus was to absorb and bear the wrath of God and die, not for his own sins, because he was sinless, but for the sins of the whole world. Because Jesus is the object of the intense hatred of sin and the vengeance against sin, which God had patiently stored up since the beginning of the world, he is now pouring it all out on Jesus. 1 John 2.2 says, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation is a wonderful Bible word. It means God, Jesus, satisfies the wrath of God against sinful humanity, thus changing God's wrath toward us into favor. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In the garden, Jesus was facing the utter horror of one who lives wholly for the Father in perfect love relationship for eternity past, a love that was complete, never broken, never distorted, and not only to have faced this love being broken and alienated, but what Jesus was face-to-face with in the garden was receiving from that lover all his eternal anger and wrath. That's what almost crushed Jesus in the garden. Under the taste and the smell of the cup, Jesus almost dies right there on the spot. But what we see as well in the garden is a willing sacrifice. What we see in the garden is not only the agony of Christ, but also the choice of Christ. Recall the narrative. Jesus reaches out out to his father three times, and he says to God three times in a prayer, is there any other way? And God says, no. And then he turns to his disciples three times, can you watch and pray with me? And they reply, no. And then his other friend is on his way with a mob to betray him with a kiss. And Jesus is all alone in the garden. 
He's all alone. His friends are asleep. He's asking God to let this cup pass, and God's saying no. And he's all alone in the garden. Now, if he's all alone, couldn't Jesus, being all alone in the garden, just slip away like he's done other times when they tried to kill him? Like, my disciples are asleep. The Father's not answering my prayer. I'm going to slip out, and no one would ever know. Yes, he could have, and that's the point. He had to choose the cross. It was a choice. He had to choose to die. He had to will it. This was the beginning of what Mark said in, uh, what Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, that he had not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He had come to give his life as a ransom for many. In Gethsemane, Jesus made the first payment of that ransom to will to become the sin bearer for humanity. And it was the reality of that choice and all it meant that almost killed him. Jesus in the garden sampled the cup of the wrath of God and chose to drink it to the bottom for you. He sampled it in the garden. He knew what it meant to die for humanity's sins and he drank it to the bottom. See, it was finished on the cross, but it was settled in the garden. It was finished on the cross, but his heart was settled in the garden. There is this wonderful scene in the Passion of the Christ, though it's not biblical, it's extra biblical. However, it's a very, very good scene when Jesus is in the garden and he stands up and he chooses, I'm going to the cross, and he steps on the serpent's head, crushing it. Jesus chose in the garden to go to the cross. He was going to go. He was going to be the willing sacrifice that satisfied and secured our salvation. Now, you also have to see the irony here. Jesus is referring to the Father in the most intimate way possible. He calls him Abba. The most intimate form, it would like, maybe like you call your dad, Daddy. The most intimate thing, or maybe you have a made-up name that you call your dad. We're just really intimate, only between you and your dad. No one else calls him that. You don't, no one else walks up to your dad and says, Daddy, only you do. It's that special name that you have. Jesus refers to God in this very intimate way, the most intimate way possible. In the same breath, he's accepting the cup of wrath offered to him by his Abba. Abba, is there any other way? And his Abba's, no, there is not. And he hands him the cup of, the, of his own wrath. And Jesus' prayer wasn't this calm absorption into an all-encompassing divine presence. It wasn't like this divine presence was happening in the garden. It was an intense struggle with the frightful reality of God's will and what it really means to fully submit to God's will. But this is what Jesus came to rest in and to submit to, that the Father knows what he's doing. And Jesus, his desire was to obey the Father and that desire to obey the Father is stronger than its desire to serve himself. For Jesus did not come into, in this world to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, in the garden, in the Bible, we see two very important gardens in the Bible. There's the Garden of Eden, and then there's the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Garden of Eden is the first garden. God tells Adam to obey me about a tree, and you will live. Obey me about this tree, and you will live, and I will bless you, and I will be near you, and I will walk with you in the cool of the day. Obey me about this tree, 
and he didn't. And then there's a second garden. And God tells Jesus to obey me about a tree, and you will die, and I will crush you, and I will hang you on that tree, and I will forsake you on that tree, and I will put the sin of the world upon you to bear. And he did. He chose in the garden to die for us. Surely, he has borne our grief, and he's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is what came into shocking clarity in the garden. Jesus was going to bear the weight and the wrath of our rebellion, our sheepish astray, our turning to our own way to bring us back to God. And so he stands up, and with this calmness goes to his cross, to our cross, for us. And at the very end of Mark, the very end, finally, somebody gets it right. No one has really seen who Jesus really was throughout the whole book of Mark. He's been trying to tell everybody who he was, but no one really got it until the cross. Because before that, Jesus is telling everybody to be quiet. You are the Christ. Be quiet. I'm going to tell everybody about you. Don't. Don't say a word. He silences the demons. He silences people he heals. He tells everybody, don't say a word about me until the cross. And this centurion looks up at Jesus on the cross, and he says, truly, this is the Son of God. And Mark leaves him alone. Tell the world, that's who Jesus is. He's the one who was crucified and died for the sins of the world. That is the Son of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for dying for us. And right now, we want to reflect. We want to spend some time worshiping, reflecting, Letting this settle, this, let, let, this, let this be on us this week. The disciples, I can't even imagine those three days when you were in the tomb when all hope was lost, Lord. We know that Easter is coming. They did not. And I pray, God, that whatever sin that we would have, whatever separation that we would have, even if we violated our own conscience and we don't even believe in you, I ask, God, right now that you would make this real to us, God that our sins can be forgiven, that our conscience can be cleared, the guilt that was upon us can be removed. And by your stripes, we can be healed. I pray that you would save, show us our need for you, Lord. We thank you for going to the cross. We thank you for choosing, for willing. And we want to reflect on this, Lord, and respond to this. In Jesus' name, amen.